Welcome to the Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine and Arizona State University. Electric vehicles, or EVs, seem like a very modern innovation, but in fact, were invented around the same time as the internal combustion engine. From the 1890s until the First World War, both types of vehicles were popular, with drivers often preferring the quiet and durable electric car over internal combustion engines. But after falling out of favor in the 1920s, conventional wisdom has it that EVs did not experience a resurgence until the 2010s because battery technology was simply not advanced enough to meet drivers' expectations and needs. I'm Jason Lloyd, Managing Editor of Issues. On this episode, I'm joined by Matthew Eisler, who challenges that conventional history of EVs. Matt is a lecturer of history at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland, and the author of a new book, Age of Autoelectric, Environment, Energy, and the Quest for the Sustainable Car, which was published in December 2022 by MIT Press. He adapted an excerpt from the book for the winter edition of Issues in Science and Technology. Matt, in your book, you say that one of the defining features of the history of electric vehicles in the United States was that of false starts. The first one being at the very dawn of the automotive age, when many early vehicles used rechargeable lead-acid batteries. And then the, the second false start occurring in the 1990s and early 2000s, when some automakers experimented with all electric vehicles, but but ultimately scrapped their electric car programs. And you make the case that these false starts had little to do with battery technology, but were much more the result of public policy, business models, social conditions, and other factors. So could you talk about these false starts? That's right, Jay. Um, and so we public policy has always played a, a huge role in the, uh, the shaping of the broader landscape, the industrial landscape and the social landscape for electric vehicles. And so um, within the, the literature on the history of science and technology, authors like uh, Heise Mommer talked about the, the first false start. And that was at the turn of the 20th century, the, the first two decades of the 20th century, when at the 19-teens um, and, and the, the 19, early 1900s, there were uh, electric vehicles were, in, in some contexts, they outnumbered internal combustion vehicles and outperformed them in, in, on a number of metrics. And besides being clean, they were easier to operate, easier to drive, easier to manage. And then there were improvements in technology that sort of enabled internal combustion vehicles to become easier to manage. So the electric car starter certainly made it easier to start uh, internal combustion uh, engine vehicles. But it was really, uh, mom argues that it was really with the advent of the First World War and the state intervention to uh, produce, uh, to move the economy to a war footing and the massive uh, production of internal combustion vehicles and particularly trucks. At the end of the First World War, there was this enormous mass of uh, war surplus vehicles of all sorts. And they were uh, the, uh, the argument was that electric vehicles just could not compete at, on a cost uh, basis with this uh, huge output of um, uh, uh, war-produced internal combustion vehicles. And then, of course, the 1920s, you had the po post-war decade of prosperity in the United States. You have the massive expansion of uh, Fordist pr uh, production, uh, and that basically uh, seals the coffin on the electric vehicle on public roads. 
And so it was, the argument is that um, was, as a result of the inability of electric vehicles to compete on a cost basis, they disappear. And it's not until many, many years later, and for non-economic reasons initially, but from the environmental crisis, energizes public policy and then creates, in California, it really is in, in, in the US context, where the modern age of auto electric really begins with a zero emission vehicle statute. And that compels automakers to make zero emission vehicles. The only practical zero emission vehicle at that time is an all battery electric vehicle. And there are a number of reasons why automakers don't want to produce battery electric vehicles, all battery electric vehicles at commercial scale. Largely because I've argued in the book, they believe that it would undermine a century old business model um, because the most valuable uh, component of an electric vehicle is, is the battery. And because of a temporal mismatch between the motor and the battery, batteries have a much shorter lifespan than motors, which can last decades. That implies that all of the profit in a commercial scale, all battery electric vehicle is going to be in the, in the battery and that you're going to really be more interested in making batteries than making cars. And the automaking industry, for them, that was an experiment they did not want to engage in. And so that was, I've argued in the book, this was the, the main reason that they, they had rolled out uh, electric vehicles on a demonstration basis, essentially, to please uh, California air quality regulators. And they withdrew these programs in the early 2000s and essentially destroyed, in the case of GM, they ostentatiously destroyed these vehicles and sending a message that we are the ones, not public policymakers, that are going to determine the kinds of energy conversion technologies in automobiles. And then, so the second revival really ha the revival really happens partly because there's an it's a, it's an economic crisis that really uh, leads to Silicon Valley becoming interested in reviving all battery electric automobility. The environmental crisis is always in the background. It's always a justification made by proponents of electric vehicles, particularly those coming from Silicon Valley. But it's it's also this economic crisis that is overlapping. Um, with the uh, environmental crisis that leads to this, this uh, revival uh, stage where um, you have the, the, the collapse of the dot-com boom in the late uh, 1990s, early 2000s, $5 trillion in paper wealth is lost as a result of this highly speculative enterprise. The uh, personal computing is all, uh, the infrastructure is all built out by the end of the 1990s. And now it's time for the, to, to, to do business on the internet. That's highly speculative and that collapses. And, and so out of that uh, collapse come some successful uh, dot-com entrepreneurs who are looking for the next big thing. It's a classic conundrum of capital going back 200 years. What does capital do for the next big thing? What's the next big investment? And for people like Elon Musk and Martin Eberhard, Mark Tarpening, all were co-founders of Tesla, the, the next big thing was going to be in transportation. And so they, they saw that, that uh, public policy was, uh, was really very strongly involved in transportation. That was the experience of the 1990s. And particularly Elon Musk, I think, was, was very prescient in seeing the expanding role of, of public policy of the state in the transportation sector. And so that economic crisis of, of within Silicon Valley, the environmental crisis and the expansion of public policy in particularly in, in transportation, all three of these factors really combine to drive the revival. So we've gotten to the point where, where Detroit is more or less stalled on, no pun intended, on producing electric vehicles. Um, and these new players, these Silicon Valley players have stepped in. And one of the things that you talk about as being a way of reconceiving the EV was through this metaphor of as a computer on wheels. So one of the reasons Detroit automakers weren't interested in it was because they saw it as kind of a 
as a, a, a sort of platform for batteries, and they, they didn't want to be involved as they, they didn't want to become battery producers. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs following dot-com boom um, actually saw a similar thing, but saw the potential for it as continuing something that they had been doing with hardware and software for computers. So could you talk about who these new players are, who you've, you've, you've mentioned a little bit, and how this metaphor of a computer on wheels helped them kind of reimagine the EV? I think the, the idea of a computer on wheels um, fed into a lot of the the general mode of innovation that uh, Silicon Valley had had uh, come to pioneer, um, particularly by the by the late 1990s. And what we need to understand too is that uh, that that mode of development, in in many ways, uh, was been conditioned by long term trends in the broader American economy that saw uh, sort of the optimization of within the American consumer electronics industry around semiconductors. And the gradual sort of disintegration of the consumer electronics industry within the United States and the, the shifting of a lot of the material practice, a lot of the assembly, a lot of the design to Asia, the optimization within the U.S. For, around semiconductors as being the strategic um, electronic component, the most important part of, um, of of computers and of consumer electronics in general. And, and this, from, this happened through the, the 1980s. And so you had this asymmetrical global consumer electronics industry where within the United States, you would have uh, computer commodifiers like, uh, like Dell, for example. And this was the, the term uh, that Michael Dell coined to understand innovation in this environment where a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the design, a lot of the manufacturing was offshore and outsourced. And this was, uh, he'd coined this term virtual integration. And the idea was that you could simply assemble consumer electronics using components available on the open market that were produced offshore. And you could maintain uh, within uh, the company, in this case, Dell, you could have a skeleton R&D crew and you really would have um, low overhead costs and you wouldn't have, uh, essentially it was a marketing model. And then you would have the consumer who would decide, well, what kinds of characteristics do I want in my personal computer? They would design their computer, so to speak, on, based on off-the-shelf components. Now that model worked really, really well with desktop computers. When it, they, uh, Dell tried to apply that model to a more complicated technologies, mobile uh, technology, um, um, personal computers, laptop computers, there were systems integration problems linked to um, this new uh, component that was being introduced um, in consumer electronics in the 1990s. And this was the lithium ion battery with tremendously energetic power source, the greatest advance in power source technology in, in a century, the most energetic battery ever ever created to date. And so, uh, yes, there were certainly bumps in, in the, uh, in the uh, virtual integration model when it came to mobile electronics. But I think where Martin Eberhard and his, and his collaborator, Mark Tarpening, were concerned, they, they, they weren't really thinking through the, the, the laptop battery crisis. So this was a very powerful, energetic battery the components were highly combustible and so you really needed a, a very robust safety uh, protocols in order to be able to use these these technologies at scale but all the all this complexity of virtually integrating an electric vehicle was sort of glossed by the idea of talking about um the electric car as a computer on, on wheels it was um it was it was a, a way of an, it was a way of, of framing a problem and approaching a problem and then engaging with that that problem 
when you're working in the milieu of, of Silicon Valley. And it was, it was really a way, a thought experiment of working through problems when, when you had, uh, and of course, uh, Eberhard and Tarpening had no background in making automobiles. They didn't, and Eberhard freely admitted he, he did not know what he was doing at the beginning. And I don't think he should be faulted for that. I mean, he's, he was not an automobile engineer. So this, the, the, uh, the metaphor of the computer on wheels really helped experts from a completely different field, consumer electronics and programming, engage with this unfamiliar technology that no one had really developed at scale. I mean, the auto industry had developed it, but I mean, these were, this was a demonstration scale. And they were not using, at that time, lithium-ion battery technology too, which was, uh, this, this was a, a, a very potent device to integrate in, in a laptops and there were serious systems integration problems just on that level. And so applying that technology to an electric vehicle where you're using a much greater volume of uh, reactive material, I mean, this is a, a serious engineering uh, challenge. Could you talk a little bit about the, the public policy landscape at the time that these, these, this next generation of EVs were emerging into and, and how that shaped the, um, the industry? Yeah, there were, there were really two tracks of public policy. So there was environmental policy and mainly um, primarily uh, the um, zero emission vehicle statute, which was part of a larger statute called the low emission vehicle statute, which was uh, promulgated as, as part of one package in 1990. And so the automaking industry, the global automaking industry, not just, it's important to understand, not just American automakers, but the global automaking industry hated the zero emission vehicle statute. They hated the uh, prospect of being forced to make battery electric vehicles, all automakers, because of the challenge that it represented to this century old business model. And so they resisted the zero emission vehicle statute. And essentially they got into, um, they managed to engage the California Air Resources Board, whose sole concern was air quality in California. They engaged uh, the California Air Resources Board in an extended definition, a process of defining what the zero emission vehicle was going to be, because California by law could not specify the kind of technology that was going to yield these particular air quality outcomes. California was not allowed to specify the kinds of energy conversion technologies that would produce these air quality outcomes because energy efficiency in automobiles was a prerogative of the federal government. So California could only use these vague terms, air quality outcomes. And so the automobile industry was able to say, well, what do you mean by a zero emission vehicle? You could mean an all battery electric vehicle, but you could all, it could also be something else. It could be a fuel cell electric vehicle. And this is what the auto industry tried to do. They tried to come up with alternate kinds of technology that could achieve the same air quality outcomes. And what the automobile industry argued in their attempt to roll back the zero emission vehicle mandate was that the existing battery electric technology was insufficient. It had a poor range. It couldn't deliver uh, the parameters of performance in a commercial automobile. And so they introduced other considerations besides air quality into their discussion with CARB on the identity of, of the zero emission vehicle. And so what the auto industry was able to do is that they were able to change the character of what the zero emission vehicle statute implied for the automobile industry from it, uh, changing that from an industrial program to a, a program of long-term research and development. And in this way, they um, were able to put off scaling their their battery electric fleets and uh, in exchange for this, for this promise down the road of an electric supercar. And so 
And the California Air Resources Board, by the early uh, 2000s, found itself, it, it engaged in this debate with the auto industry over the identity of the zero emission vehicle. And it agreed with the auto, auto industry, essentially, that existing battery electric vehicle technology was was inadequate. Now, it didn't it didn't get rid of the mandate, but it delayed implementing. It accepted the auto, auto industry's reasons for not immediately uh, commercializing these technologies. And so from that element of public policy, had uh, essentially reached, it was at an impasse vis-a-vis um, -vis the industry by the early 2000s. But then there was also um, another emerging aspect of public policy that was ultimately responsible for uh, galvanizing the resurgence of the electric vehicle, and this was economic policy, and particularly through the 2000s. As energy prices rose and following the dot-com crisis, there was a deepening economic crisis, which really manifested from in the Great Recession from, from 2007. And there were a series of uh, uh, major pieces of leg legislation which reoriented the interventionist, the U.S. interventionist state away from some other technologies that it was supporting, including the fuel cell hydrogen fuel cell technology. And it began to uh, to shift towards in favor of um, large battery plug-in vehicles, large battery hybrids with the uh, Energy Policy Act of 2005 and the Ener Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, both prioritized large battery hybrid electric vehicles. And it was a major shift in, in priorities for the US government and particularly the energy research and development arm of it, which had been supporting, had long been supporting various kinds of research on power sources relating to electric automobility, advanced, a variety of advanced batteries and, and fuel cells. And really at the turn of the millennium, there was a strong emphasis on hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells through the, the Bush administration particularly. But by the middle of the 2000s, by, by 2005, there'd been a, there was a shift away from hydrogen fuel cells and a willingness to consider, if not all battery electric vehicles, then large battery hybrids. And partly because of the success of the uh, Prius, Toyota's Prius, which at that time was, uh, was probably making uh, Toyota money at that time. And so these, these factors, the economic crisis, the success of a, of a competitor, a, a foreign automaker with a kind of an electric vehicle that was reaching American markets, all of these factors then galvanized the second track of public policies, economic policy, particularly during uh, the recession. And then highly incentivized um, the development of, uh, of of electric vehicles, large battery electric vehicles, and this really really helped the early Tesla because by by 2009 GM had gone bankrupt and Chrysler had gone bankrupt and and uh, Tesla had not gone bankrupt. It was it was actually <laughs> it was not functioning like a conventional uh, commercial enterprise. It, it didn't make profits at all, so it couldn't go bankrupt. But it was in economic trouble. And it received a lot of help from the Department of Energy, a, a crucial low interest loan that really, really helped it uh, stay afloat and develop its its technology, its its uh, uh, its follow on to the Roadster, which was the Model S. So there was these. It was really this uh, economic crisis that galvanized and re-energized the environmental policy, which had started the whole process with the zero emission vehicle uh, statute and then helped Silicon Valley develop the resources to develop technology that the mainstream automakers had rejected. And in rejecting, had opened up a space for these new players to emerge and, and kind of you know reconceive of the EV that they had essentially passed on as a future technology. Absolutely. And now it, GM ha did realize 
in the mid 2000s that it had made a terrible mistake in not uh, trying to compete with Toyota's Prius. And so that it tried to develop its own hybrid, large battery hybrid, the Volt, um, which had the, the fate of being rolled out right at the beginning of the recession. So it was uh, when the Obama administration helped reconfigure the automaking industry. It was it, it did so, and it did it, it did its reorganization of GM with the express intent of compelling GM to invest more in alternative propulsion technologies, including electric technology and hybrid electric technology. And so that that reorganization that took place in two thousand and nine really strongly emphasized and, and helped GM develop this belated technology, which was late to the game, designed to compete with the Prius and was was just not successful it was just too late but then as tesla built up momentum in the in the 2010s then the rest of the auto industry the global auto industry uh, sort of realized that all battery electric vehicles were were going to be a, a big thing because public policy was supporting tesla and people wanted all battery electric vehicles they didn't just want hybrids they wanted you know the, the pure option of having a, a car that had zero emissions yeah. One of the other things I wanted to touch on is that there were other metaphors that could have been used in connection with EVs that that weren't. And I'm thinking in particular of the idea of a, the, the car as a power plant on wheels, which is, you know, as kind of a counterfactual would involve a different set of actors, yet again, not, maybe not even Silicon Valley and, and Detroit, but, you know, electric utilities or something, who would bring in different motivations. Now that that didn't happen, but EVs do have kind of a complex relationship with or potentially have a complex relationship with existing electric infrastructure. And one of the things I think you do you do focus on in your book is that electricity and automobility emerged around the same time in the late 19th century, but that the industries evolved separately with, you know, essentially totally incompatible technologies and business models. And that lack of integration, now that these industries are sort of converging again might cause problems in places where EVs have become popular. So could you could you talk about the relationship between EVs and the built environment? Absolutely. Well, utilities uh, have had a long relationship with electric vehicles and and almost as soon as the first grids were built at the turn of the 20th century, the first electric vehicles were were being introduced and at an early stage, the ex these expanding utilities saw electric vehicles as a way to soak up nighttime demand, ex excess demand, another way of storing electricity that wouldn't have otherwise had a market. And so that was that led to the creation of um, uh, a utility managed charging pools where electric vehicles would they would be centrally charged and they would be they would operated on a fleet basis. Users wouldn't actually own them; they would lease them, um, and then the utilities would have a, an ownership stake. And then they could they could use these devices, uh, electric vehicles, as a, as a means of managing their own business of selling electricity. And at, prior to the First World War, they favored electric trucks because they had very large batteries. And so this was, so th their interpretation of an electric vehicle was not necessarily the interpretation of the of an electric vehicle from the average person on the street who would have a completely different sort of a use application uh, uh, than than the utilities, right? Because obviously, if you're an average commuter, you wouldn't be interested in driving an electric truck. So the those interests, the utility interests kind of aligned with the interests of other kinds of commercial enterprises at that time. After the First World War, the whole question of uh, using uh, EVs as a mode of grid storage, it went away because all of the utilities were massively expanding across time zones and solving this problem of demand by, by locking into other sources of demand across time zones in an environment of uh, massive industrialization where the United States was just growing. And so this growth of industry industrialization 
inform the growth of electrification. And, and those two factors really eliminated the need to have a large electric uh, vehicle fleet. Now, it's not to say that utilities uh, gave up the the dream of, of having electric vehicle fleets. That, that I don't think they ever did. I mean, if you read um, uh, accounts through the... Um, the post-war period, right up until the 90s, utilities are always sort of interested, they, they still remain interested in the potential of uh, using electric vehicles uh, to soak up off-peak demand. But the interesting thing is when you look at all the various players involved in electric automobility from the 1990s on, you don't really see um, electric utilities being a, 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 the, the dominant voice in the room. They're not the ones who are getting a hearing when it comes to the discussion of, of what kind of a mix of electric vehicles versus internal combustion vehicles are going to be in the fleet. It's air quality regulators and it's the automaking industry. And those are the two voices and all of the other allied industry, uh, allied interests that are associated with them. Those are the ones dominating the debate. And the electric utilities just really don't really appear to have much political influence. And it's really an interesting phenomenon because when you think about the scaling of the electric fleet, it, it has massive implications for utilities and, and, and for the grid. But um, the California Resources Board was just not thinking in terms of the implications of a scaled electric fleet when they promulgated the zero emission vehicle statute. There was not a full stakeholder discussion of what the energy conversion infrastructures of the United States would look like once the fleet was built out. That never happened for a variety of reasons. And it's because the, I think that it was not a centralized debate. It was, uh, it was, a, it was at the federal level, it was seen as a, this is a, re, a, a regional question. Now, it's, it's true that you have air quality problems throughout the United States, throughout ur urban regions, throughout the country. But there was no real arbiter of all the various groups that would was capable or willing to sit them all down and say, well, let's just think through what we're what we're doing here and how the changes to the automobile fleet are going to impact changes to the electric grid in terms of demand and in terms of systems integration, systems compatibility. That discussion really never happened. It's happening now because I think people who are taking a closer look at, at the relationship between grids and cars are seeing that there could be some quite serious systems problems down the road. I, I didn't really talk about those that, that the implications that much in the book, um, I, but people are really, a lot of people are talking about it right now. They're, they're very concerned about it. And, and people like uh, Bob Charette, the risk analyst who writes for IEEE Spectrum has written quite extensively on this. Some neighborhoods that have uh, a very large number uh, of uh, electric vehicles, if all of these vehicles are charging at the same time, that could have serious implications for transformer technology. It could rapidly age that technology and burn out these, trans these local transformers. So this discussion did not happen uh, during the first 30 years following the zero emission vehicles statute, and it's beginning to happen now. I don't know if it's happening at a, at a high enough level for rapid action to take place. I'm not, I, I don't, I, I don't know about that. It doesn't really seem when you, when you look at the follow the media and you follow the discourse on electric vehicles, you really don't hear so much about systems integration problems, but certainly these are, they're, they're happening. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I guess another aspect of sort of systems integration that I wanted to talk about was supply chains and, you talk about the EV revival as being made possible by building on existing supply chains that were constructed for the consumer electronic industry. And you have a you have a pretty funny anecdote about uh, Martin Eberhard going to Sanyo in Japan, and he convinced the battery factory manager uh, to sell him lithium ion batteries by 
by essentially saying, this is basically the equivalent of 2,000 laptops and you know, that they were putting into this vehicle. And so you're going to sell a lot of batteries. So I'm, I'm curious about sort of looking ahead a little bit now that you have what you mentioned, the, the way that the industry has been set up with you know, sort of design occurring in Western countries, manufacturing occurring in Asian countries. Now that the weaknesses of that supply chain, the disadvantages have sort of come to the fore over the past few years, certainly with the pandemic and the semiconductor shortages, how do you see this arrangement potentially evolving in the, in the future? I don't see how you're going to have a commercial scale electric vehicle without these global supply chains. I don't see how it can be done. The industrial infrastructure of the United States has, as I said earlier, has been optimized for particular things within um, all, all of the things that constitute electronics. And that's, that's really been semiconductors and everything else that has to do with consumer electronics from flat screen technology to power sources. I mean, most of that is manufactured at scale by enterprises in Asian countries, in South Korea, in Japan, and in China. A lot of the basic science for that was developed in the United States, but it was never applied by industrial enterprises because there just weren't any industrial enterprises that were interested in, in making those kinds of technologies in the United States because of this decision that it was going to be semiconductors as the strategic area, the most valuable area. And so when you think about all the various kinds of new knowledge that you would need, if you were going to build uh, an industry from an electric vehicle industry from scratch, there are a whole bunch of skill sets. There are, there are a whole bunch of knowledge fields that are just not being developed in the United States at the scale that you would need. Um, for example, uh, electrochemistry and solid state ionics, the, the theory of, of power sources, it's, it's happening in some disciplines like material science, for example. But there's a crucial element that's missing in that there, there aren't really that many enterprises, US enterprises that apply that knowledge. So you can, you can get a degree in material science, but whether or not you'll get a job in industry, it's another question. And when we talk about the relationship between basic science and industrial production too. The assumption is that you don't have a basic knowledge, new knowledge being produced in the factory floor. Well, in the history of technology, we know that's just not true. And there are all kinds of knowledge problems. Factory floors are much they're kinds of laboratories where brand new knowledge is created by engineers. All kinds of new circumstances that weren't considered at the laboratory bench appear at factory scale. And there just aren't that there aren't that many industrial enterprises in the United States that apply that knowledge. Now, what we see now is that there are certainly a lot of uh, Asian enterprises that are, are re relocating to the United States. And that's how, and that's how that the basic knowledge and the basic engineering uh, is uh, for uh, an electric vehicle industry is being, is being constituted in the United States. So there's, there's been a flow back of capacity and then that capacity is being built in the United States. But then you would have to make a broader set of inquiries into whether or not you have the, the, the post-secondary university complex is aligned and producing the kinds of knowledge that you want in these factories, or is it all going to be imported? And we're trying to create firewalls around certain Asian countries. We're trying to create a firewall around China right now, but uh, but the, the the economies of Japan, South Korea, and China are heavily integrated. I don't see how you could possibly firewall South Korea and Japan from from China and Taiwan. It's it's a very very difficult thing to do, and relying on all of that offshore expertise. I mean, that's just a, a result of the historical dynamics and the way uh, U.S. capitalism has organized itself globally 
And it's not going to be, I think, a system that, you, that you're easily going to be able to reconfigure. I don't see that um, the, the system that's been set up, this global complex, this asymmetrical distribution of different kinds of expertise, different kinds of skills, different kinds of industrial capacity, reconfiguring that and, and, re, and bringing that all back to the United States is going to be, I think, a, a quite difficult task. Great. Well, I feel like I certainly have a better sense of kind of all the many complexities involved. I hope our listeners and the readers of your piece will as well. So, Matt, thank you so much for for joining us. This was this was a really fascinating discussion. Oh, my pleasure, Jay. It was really it was a real a pleasure chatting with you. To learn more about electric vehicles and the complexities of their development and widespread adoption, read Matthew Eisler's book Age of Autoelectric: Environment, Energy, and the Quest for the Sustainable Car. Visit issues.org to read an excerpt from the book. And there you can also subscribe to our quarterly print magazine and sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can email us at podcast at issues.org with any comments or suggestions. And of course, I encourage you to subscribe to The Ongoing Transformation wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our podcast producer, Kimberly Quatch, and audio engineer, Shannon Lynch. I'm Jason Lloyd, Managing Editor of Issues in Science and Technology. Thanks for joining us.